Hi, Hema. Um, how are you? Can you hear me? Uh, hi. Yeah, 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 I do hear you. Okay, I'm, yeah, um, I mean, to be honest, this is the first time I use this, <laughs> so I'm a bit... Um... <laughs> yeah, thank you for opening the room. You're the moderator now, so um, could you... Um, okay. Could you make me moderator? So you click on my profile picture and then on the bottom there should be make moderator or something. Okay. Okay, and if I, so, <laughs> uh, if I leave and then I go back, uh, will you be the moderator? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that works also. Yeah, okay, I <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I, I come back in, in a sec. Okay, I okay thank you. Okay, now I'll add okay. topics. Okay, uh, uh, now you're the moderator, right? Yep. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. How are you today? Yeah, all good. All good. Yeah, well, thanks for the invitation. Um, yeah, I'm happy to discuss the work we did recently. Um, and actually, I mean, it's interesting to, you know, discover new things. I really didn't know about this clubhouse. And, uh, so it's interesting. Yeah, thank you so much for making the account and you know doing all of this we really appreciate it so it's really nice of you thank you <laughs> no problem and um yeah so I'm, i added some topics so people find this and then now i added the talk um yeah did, did you did you check the link if it was okay i had to yeah uh, no, it's fine it's fine oh, yeah, okay. yeah i mean i i just uh, exported it from keynote so I, I yeah i knew that was quite big uh, so yeah makes sense to make it yeah too. i used adobe just to um condense mm -hmm. a little bit yeah, yeah sure. in general so so how does this so i i would basically then uh go through the through, through the slides on my computer, but then nobody will be able to follow my... Yeah, so if you could mention that you're going to the next slide or which slide number you're on, more or less, oh, okay. uh, then, okay. then people know that, that you're going to the next ah, slide. Okay. okay. And okay. when you click on it through here, um, on the bottom, it tells you which page number you're on, so people know. Um, you know, when they scroll on what page number they are on. So. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, I see, I see. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start in, uh, you know, we have 10 minutes, but um, I'll start by shortly introducing you. And then we usually start with like a short interview to make like the introduction a little bit more interactive. Yeah, sure. Um, so the you know, after saying, you know, where you work and so on, I will ask um, how how you decided to become a scientist, if you remember, like if it's a childhood dream or, yeah, okay. I don't know, a class you took or maybe a book you read or, you know, it just by chance, whatever the answer is, I think yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. Yes, sure. And then how this project came about. Um, if there's like um, a story about how you came to work on this specific project, mm -hmm. 
yeah yeah yeah. Of course. Um, yeah yeah i i have a i know the answer for those two questions okay. <laughs> so those two are easy okay cool sure. yeah i just wanted to let you know just to make sure you're okay with questions like uh, this of course usually people are we had a few people that said no thank you <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't like us, you know, I'll, let's just do a regular uh, introduction. And then I'm also, you know, we are fine with whatever, you know. Yeah, no, no, but it's interesting because at the end of the day, everybody has probably different uh, paths no? and, and stories behind how they go to where they are. So it's, it's good to know. And I mean, I'm sure that you have listened to many different reasons why the people became scientist yeah it's yeah it is really interesting to learn i i didn't you know it was not to be honest my idea to do this it was victoria she's not here because she is in california for her it's in the middle of the night no but it's, mm -hmm. yeah. it's here it's nine so there yeah. it's 6 a.m um so um and she comes you know she's a teacher mm -hmm. but she does other type of events like with authors and mm -hmm. and you know all kinds of other musicians and so on and it's very common for them to ask this uh you know and yeah. um and she said we should do that here too and that's yeah. how this came um came about but because in our field, I don't think we usually ask those people when there's a conference or... No, not, not, really. not really. Yeah, but authors get asked this all the time or, you know, famous or like uh, professional cooks or like chefs mm. or, yeah. you know, they ask that all the time, but we never get asked. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. You should do that. <laughs> yeah, no, and definitely it should be something... Uh, because there's this idea behind scientists that is very vocational, no? That is like, ah, uh, already since I was very little, I knew I wanted to be a scientist and blah, blah, blah. So it would actually be interesting to see how how often this pattern is, is you know, really occurring. Or at the end of the day, you just become a scientist because, I don't know, you go to university and then you have opportunity and then you just continue. So, yeah, it's interesting. Indeed. Yeah, it's very mixed. Like some people say, oh, yeah, I always had this interest, but not in this field, like in something mm -hmm. else. And then yeah. other people say, yeah, it just it just happened. I never wanted to become a scientist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, it's very mixed. And other people say, yeah, I still do music relatively mm -hmm. professionally or other things. Um and yeah, it's it's really interesting to learn. But a lot of people are also musicians, interestingly. I think it's the art form that is most common mm. Mm. Um, okay. is music, at least for the people we invited. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I, I know a couple of, uh, so I know a few scientists that are also musicians. Yeah, but it's true that you don't find so often like a scientist that is, uh, I don't know, uh, painter or or yeah well actually i know one that is a painter so yeah i don't know i guess it's what you said not that the it's a uh, guess this creativity no uh, and then you can often go science and art something like that 
yeah yeah i agree but you know and then it's also interesting from different countries how people view scientists and then also kind of reflect in those stories mm -hmm. you know in some countries where i c come from like i'm portuguese but grew up in germany mm -hmm. it's relatively well seen to be a scientist mm -hmm. but here in the us it's not at all <laughs> okay. those are just weirdos yeah so you, you in, in the states is 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 not so it's it's People no, don't it people or, or... think they are all weird and and, ah, okay. and maybe even scary and okay and yeah like you know weird nerds okay that yeah. never you know that never talk to people and are not social and I feel like it's really the opposite yeah <laughs> people yeah. travel a lot you know for yeah. conferences meet people yeah. a lot and. Yeah, very creative people think there's no creativity it's just yeah, yeah it's it's very weird how different it is in different countries the view of people that do different things yeah yeah i mean in spain i guess it's indifference right <laughs> people don't really realize that they are that they are a sector of society doing science uh but i think in in the uk it's probably quite similar to germany they they scientists are quite well esteemed no? uh, so yeah so it's interesting <laughs> but mm. oh the, it, your your name is Chema right no Chema no. Chema. Chema oh okay sorry yeah <laughs> yeah 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 I know I know it, it, it's I mean yeah it's difficult to to pronounce for I mean, yeah, like Spanish would be the ch, the ch would be ch, ch. but uh, oh, okay. but then, yeah, but then so I'm from Spain, uh, and then, yeah, but then here in the UK people pronounce it uh, all sort of ways. So I know my brother's name is Jose. Jose yeah, it's the same. Yeah, so <laughs> my name is my name is Jose. Uh, but then it's Jose Maria, and then they, they, they need kind of like the short form would be Chema. Let's yeah. Say, like say. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because nobody can say my name, except in Portugal, nobody else can say the name, right? Jose Pedro. The poor, yeah. <laughs> my poor brother. Yeah, and I think in Portuguese they, they also uh, shorten the, the Jose as Se, no? Uh, Zé Pedro, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so it's the same, it's the same. Yeah, I'm sharing, we, we have five minutes, but I'm sharing now on Twitter that we're starting. Okay. And, um, hi everyone, uh, welcome. We will start in five minutes. So um, feel free to hang out with us a little bit. I shared in the... Um, in the chat, the website um, of Chema here today, and you can check it out in the meantime. And then on top is uh, the link to the talk that is really beautiful. <laughs> the presentation is a very beautiful presentation. Feel free to, in the meantime, also check it out. And we will start in a few. Oh, let me also share the link to the paper. Um, I'll share the bioarchive version so everyone has access 
or was uh, it it's, uh, it's open, open source? In nature? Yeah, the nature, the, the the paper in nature is open access. Oh, it is. Okay, then I can. Okay. Oh yeah. It's... Okay. Feel free to come on the stage to ask questions or share them in the chat. And um, hi, Kirko. You don't want to come up? How are you? Good morning. How is everything going? Pretty good. Just got off work a few hours ago because I work overnight. So oh. I just got home. Yeah. That was perfect time, you know. It's my day off. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> we will. <laughs> That's nice. So you're still, you work overnight. Where is, is it still defense or? Uh, I work at a, at a local hospital, so I'm in the uh, army and I also work at a local hospital. Right. Yeah. I remembered that you were at the army, um, but I wasn't sure if you're still, I don't know. There's a limit of time where can you stay in the army forever in the US? Like, is there a limit of years you can, you can stay employed at the army? Well, I just joined, uh, like I just finished oh. training maybe, <laughs> uh, November. Uh, so like I just started or whatnot. So uh, I've ah, got okay. quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> you still have time. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. So, well, we will start in a couple of minutes. Um, Feel free to share the room and um, this will be a really interesting talk which um, the end with a very beautiful presentation. So um, yeah, we will start, start shortly. I'm sharing, I sound so weird because I'm sharing right now also on Instagram that we are about to start and um, The first minutes are always busy because there's stuff you cannot do really before the room. Like um, there's things you, you have to do when the room is just about to start, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can slowly start with introduction. I know people will, uh, will come in um, mm -hmm. because, yeah, and for a lot of people it's, um, it's very early or at night, but um, that's fine. We are recording for that reason. <laughs> yeah. so, oh, and as soon as I have not recordings on for introduction, people tell me, please put the recording on. <laughs> I said, this is just an introduction room, <laughs> so don't worry. Okay, so um, welcome everyone to Science Society and um, a special welcome to you and Chema. And before we start, let me give a short introduction so people get to know you a little bit. Um, Chema Martin Duran, uh, he is a senior lecturer in, um, in biology at the Queen Mary University of London. And um, he 
um, did his PhD at the University of Barcelona, uh, studying the embryonic development of planarian flatworms. And um, after finishing his PhD, he did a postdoc at the SARS Center for Marine Molecular Biology. And um, then he moved to Queen Mary University of London, where he um, built his own lab that uh, combines um, his interest in developmental biology, animal evolution, and mar marine biodiversity, which is really interesting. Um, so thank you so much for um, coming here and sharing your wonderful research with us. Yeah, my pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And our question is, um, how, how did you become a scientist? Like, can you remember what led you to this path of life, basically? Yeah, no, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I might be a bit cliche, and I actually, yeah, I decided to be a scientist when I was uh, little, and then the school took us to an um, exhibition, and there was, uh, it, it was about the advances of the sequencing the genome, the human genome, and the advances of uh, um, genetic engineering. So it was kind of the late 1990s, and then everything, I mean, you know, looked like diseases would be easily cured and all that stuff. So I don't know, I, I, I said, wow, what do I need to study to become a engineer in genetics? And they said, no, no, there's no engineering in genetics. That you, you have to study the medicine or biology, biochemistry. Uh, and yeah, that's how I said, okay, I want to study uh, biology and then I want to, to do molecular genetics and investigate, yeah, how, how the DNA controls development and, and, and these sort of things. Um, and then I decided to focus on, on development itself and evolution during then uh, uh, college. Because then I, I took a module on, on animal development and I really got fascinated by, by this process. And then I decided to kind of uh, pursue a, a career on, on animal developmental biology and, and its interface with animal evolution. Yeah. That's really interesting that you also remember that, you know, a school trip was, was quite, you know, quite interesting for you and that kind of sparked your interest so yeah. everyone who's listening please don't cut the budgets for school trips like this yeah exactly i mean at the end of the day it's, it's the way to to show you know the the young generations what, what they have the diversity of options are there for them to to pursue and, and investigate yeah yeah i agree i um that you never know what what exactly gets a person to become yeah, really yeah. interested and the more diverse like the input is the better <laughs> so people can discover what their passion is so thank you yeah, for that story that's no really interesting and then um how did did you come to work you alluded already that you then were really interested in development and evolution mm -hmm. And then how, how did this project come about? And was it like easy to get grants for it? Was it really hard? Um, 
how did this come about? Yeah, so um, so at some point in my postdoc, I I was doing a project on on the on how two major modes of development evolve, and then someone suggested to look at this one of the species that we sequenced the genome of in in, in this paper uh, because it had some weird features, and and that's how I started working on on that species of Owenia fusiformis that I, I will show later in the talk uh, and then one of the first things that we wanted to do when we started the lab was uh, to sequence the genome and and i mean Owinia is is also famous because it's uh, i mean famous within kind of the field uh, because it has this very beautiful and somehow uh, odd larva that is called the mitraria um, and then I think that one of the first goals of the lab was trying to to, to know how how this evolves, uh, sequence the genome, and then trying to understand how how development controls the formation of this particular larvae. Uh, then, uh, yeah, we discovered that it was this sort of head larva, and then that was connecting it with many other uh, papers that had been published with other marine obscure and, and weird larvae, and that's how somehow. It, it all started developing and, and, and yeah, we, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of it. Well, interesting. I'm glad the, the larva had these characteristics. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, I mean, it, it was, it was really not something that we, you know, it was not the, the goal of the project was not investigating the evolution of larvae. So somehow we got into that because we started finding that, uh, yeah, it was a weird larva uh and that it had the potential to really show something fundamental about how animals develop but it was not definitely not the, the main goal at the beginning yeah it, i i love the stories when like results or something that wasn't expected happen and instead of just discarding it and saying oh this is not what i wanted to see people go ahead and, and investigate that further. And then it turns out into this, you know, amazing um, project, and, you know, and the nature paper and so on. That, that's, uh, yeah. It gives hope. <laughs> yeah, 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 it is. It's, it was a bit serendipity, but then, yeah, it's nice that at the end, it, everything turned out well. Wonderful. Um, such a nice story. So. Uh, for everyone, the, the presentation the slides are pinned on top of the room. Feel free to access them while Chema is talking. And yeah, the stage is yours. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Well, um, yeah, uh, as I said, uh, it's really a pleasure to be here in the clubhouse and introduce you to everybody the work that we recently published. Uh, on, on the evolution of bilaterian life cycles using uh, quite unusual organisms to perhaps trying to shed some light into some uh, fundamental questions that uh, you know uh, impact all. Um, so um, I mean for most uh, for, I think that most of you probably know that there are different animals, different organisms, and the way uh, animals can uh, develop and reach their adulthood uh, can vary between different species. So there are animals, like for instance, uh, a mouse, 
that their development uh, generates an, a juvenile, an organism that is quite similar to the adult form. And that's what we call direct development because the embryogenesis directly produced a little adult that and will have to grow and mature, but it's pretty much the same morphology and the same has the same behavior and function and physiological functions than the adult. But there are many other animal groups, like for instance the butterfly, who that don't develop directly into what would be the adult form, and instead they have an indirect life uh, life stage that is what we call a larva. Uh, that will have, to some extent, a complete different lifestyle or a complete different uh, yeah, morphology and different lifestyle, and that at some point in, the, in their life will decide uh, or will find the right conditions to metamorphose and become the actual adult, the one that is sexually mature and that will reproduce and close the circle of or the close, close the life cycle. And this sort of development is what we call indirect because the embryogenesis doesn't produce directly the adult form. Uh, for many people that are not biologists, the easiest way to picture a larva is probably the caterpillar of a butterfly. But indeed, larvae are extremely diverse. And in particular, larvae dominate the, uh, the, 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 the oceans and the, the aquatic ecosystems. Mostly because for many of the animals that live in the oceans, larvae are an opportunity to kind of uh, conquer and colonize the water column uh, and disperse. Uh, they can have many different shapes, and this is just snapshot of, of the diversity of morphologies and shapes of, of marine larvae. Uh, they can have, uh, they can be very similar to the adult, like for instance on the uh, upper right there's the there's a larva of, of a shrimp and kind of looks like a shrimp, but you can have larvae that are completely different from uh, from the adult. So most of them, for instance, just below the the larva of the shrimp, this one that is kind of reddish, this is the larva of of a sea urchin, and it's you know completely different. Um, and as I was mentioning, uh, larvae uh, have evolved, or we think that they have evolved, because uh, for many organisms that are in the ocean, they can be a way of uh, dispersing. So if you think of, for instance, a sea urchin, the sea urchin has a limited movement. It will probably be in the beach moving. But then if it wants to, to, to move and, and, and occupy uh, other parts of the, of the coast, it will need to have an easy way to disperse. And we think that this is what the what this is the role of, of larvae. And actually there, there have been studies comparing the dispersal capacity of, for instance, an invertebrate with a larva uh, compared to something that has is active and that can swim like a fish. And you can see in this comparison uh, that actually uh, they, they do they can reach pretty much similar dispersal distances. Um, but larvae are also important not only for the ecology, but also many of the species that we use in economy, that for, uh, for instance the oyster, will reproduce through a larval phase. And therefore, uh, understanding how they develop and how they function is important for us to improve and make more efficient uh, aquacultures for many of the species that, we, uh, that have an economic impact. So that's pretty good, but actually I'm interested more on what the impact of larvae uh, 
is in the evolution of animals and in particular in the development of, of larvae. And larvae have uh, puzzled uh, evolutionary developmental biologists already since the, the times of Darwin. So that's, for instance, uh, a schematic drawing of how people in the late uh, 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century were thinking of how us vertebrates evolve, thinking that, they, that we evolved from a sedentary uh, ancestor that had a larva, and it was actually the larva that uh, started to become sexually mature and evolve in what we are today, a vertebrate, kind of a fish, a fish as you see in, in the Arpheoxus form. Uh, the interesting thing with larvae, though, is that although we have included the origins and, and the role of larvae in the evolution and development of, of, of extant organisms, we still don't know how larvae evolve, and we still don't know what they actually mean for the evolution of animals. And mostly when you look at the history of, of animal uh, evolution, we see that there are two main opposing scenarios to explain why organisms evolve a larva or how they actually evolve the larva. Uh, the first one is the, what is called the intercalation scenario. That would be the, 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 lar the, the, the adult first scenario in which basically people say, well, ancestrally, what, what, what was in, 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 the, in the oceans and in the ecosystems were adult forms, so we would have a sea urchin. And at some point, because perhaps this evolutionary pressure to be able to disperse, the development intercalated, so in, included an intermediate phase, that is what we call now a larva, that allowed them to live in the water column and disperse. So from this point of view, the larva is actually something that is secondary evolved and intercalated in the life cycle of the animals. But uh, there has been uh, quite a few people that were thinking the opposite, saying that perhaps actually larvae are the ancestral forms, so that then, because they are probably simpler than the adults, uh, so they basically pose that, that organisms were originally in the form of larvae, so they basically all animals were living in the water column and they were small, simple, and that at some point they decided to colonize the seabed and therefore that's how adult forms, uh, the, the extant adult forms evolve and they become the, the, the sexually mature phase. So there has been always this debate on what, what actually how they evolve and, and, and what is uh, you know, the, the exact origin of, of animal larvae. And they have always, these two different opposing scenarios have been proposing different mechanisms to explain how either they intercalated or how they added an adult stage uh, in their life cycle. So while studying uh, organisms like, like annelids, that is what my lab does, we got to a point in which we saw the potential to try to look at these questions from perhaps a more modern uh, and especially a different uh, point of view. And that's why we decided to answer this question uh, by looking at the diversity of animal of larva forms that we can collect and that we can have and keep in our lab here in the, in the University of London. So the question that we asked was how did larvae evolve? And to do that, to do that we uh, study uh, a big animal group that is called Sparelia that is actually 
comprises kind of half of the animal kingdom. So this tree, very simplified tree, with three main lineages, represents the diversity of bilaterians. So those animals with an anterior and a posterior axis and a back and a belly. So a lot of people working with animal evolution and working with especially developmental biology tend to work on deuterostomes, that is basically us, fish, human or mammal, and then start uh, searching, or with ectisosomans, that is at the bottom, uh, that is the fly and, and the worm, the nematode worm, C. elegans. However, these two uh, lineages represent really a minimal fraction of the wondrous diversity of, of animal forms. And most of the animal phyla belong to this group that is called Sparelia. Uh, they are extremely morphologically diverse. So you have snails, earthworms, many other types of worms. And they are all characterized by the fact that they have this common mode of development that is called spiral cleavage that uh, actually gives the name to, to the clade. Uh, we are interested, my lab is interested in understanding how this mode of cleavage evolves and how it is controlled. But another feature kind of, that kind of defines the group uh, Sparelia is the fact that they share a more or less common type of larva that is called the trochophore larva. Okay. And this is a picture of a trochophore larva in, in an annelid, and then below there's this uh, very um, schematic drawing. Uh, of course, the trochophore larva, as with everything kind of in biology, can take many, many different forms. So these are all different uh, Sparellian larvae, or larvae that you can find in Sparellian groups. Uh, so for instance, on, on, the, on the bottom left, the one that has red dots, is, is, a, is a larva of a marine flatworm. And on the opposite, on the bottom right, there's a, this is a larva of a marine snail. You can kind of see the shell of, of the snail. Um, so uh, what we hypothesize is that if we focus in this group with such a huge diversity of larval forms, maybe by understanding how these different larvae evolve, we could perhaps generalize and get some fundamental uh, principles of how animal larvae in general uh, might have evolved and how what would be perhaps the mechanisms that facilitate these, the, the appearance of these intermediate life st stages. So that was the idea. And uh, what we did was kind of uh, explode, uh, using uh, the, the diversity of marine organisms that we keep in my lab. So in the lab, we mostly work with segmented annelids or segmented worms, and there you have a picture of, of a Winia fusiformis. Uh, and it's basically, you know, it's kind of an earthworm, uh, but marine. Uh, so it has an anterior head, a posterior tail, and then a long trunk that is uh, made of uh, units that kind of repeat uh, themselves along the anterior-posterior axis. So Winia fusiformis is interesting because it has this very peculiar larval form that you, you can see on, on the right, uh, that has this kind of UFO shape uh, with, uh, with a big umbrella. Uh, then what you see, uh, you, you see a couple of chambers. This is the digestive system. The digestive system has kind of a U shape. And then uh, kind of in the mid posterior part of, of, the, of the bottom of the umbrella, this is kind of a, a um, uh, a posterior part that has some uh, ketal, kitty uh, needles. Okay, so that's the uh, the mitraria larva. 
And we work a lot with Owenia fusiformis because it's the sister to the remaining annelids. So it's kind of a basal annelid, and therefore we use it to understand how this group of organisms evolve. But in the lab, we also keep two other species of, of annelids. One is Capitella teleta, which, is a, which also has a larva, so also has indirect development, but it has a different, a very different type of larva. It's a larva that uh, is short-lived and it has a lot of uh, yolk, it has a lot of nutrients that the mother gives and puts in the oocyte. So these are two different types of larvae. The one in Noenia is uh, lives for a long time in the water column and it's a predator, eats, filters the water and gets algae. While in Capitella teleta is short-lived and it basically uses the, the nutrients that are provided by the mother. And then we have another species that is uh, Dimorphilus gyrociliatus that is a direct developer. So we kind of have here three species with three very different uh, life cycles two indirect, one direct, and then within the indirect, two with two different shapes and forms and types of larvae. And what is interesting is that the three of them, of these species, are annelids, so they kind of share a similar body plan, they are all segmented worms, and they also share a similar development. So somehow this is the ideal mechanism to see how animals start from a common point of, uh, from, from a common start point, same development, diverge during their life, their life cycles, either including or intercalating a larva or not, and then converge in the adult forms, uh, in this case becoming a segmented worm. And uh, what we do in the lab is uh, do functional genomics and, and comparative development. So what we decided to do is uh, basically uh, investigate or, or identify what uh, the mechanisms could be to generate these differences in life cycles, but by checking how genes in their genomes are expressed during their development. Okay, so we wanted to understand how these difference and these different life cycles evolve, and we did that by generating time courses of uh, transcriptomes, uh, transcriptomic RNA-seq RNA time courses during the, the development of these three different species and then do uh, comparative transcriptomics. So uh, as expected, the, the complexity of their transcriptomes increases uh, with time and increases as they progress in their developmental time because at the end of the day, embryos are becoming more complex. Then you have a larva that has different cell types and different structures and then after metamorphosis, they generate an adult that is way more complex. So genes, uh, the number of genes increases during the life cycle. Um, but then, because uh, we can, because the, these species are kind of closely, relatively closely related, what we can do is try to compare how the same gene is expressed, how different the same genes expressed between two different species. And kind of a, in a way of, as a proxy to measure how similar or dissimilar the development between the two species is. Uh, and you can see here that when you compare uh, the, 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 the dynamics of expression of uh, the direct developer with the twin direct, what you can see here is that when you compare the direct with Owinia that has this weird mitraria, the mitraria is the point more dissimilar. So basically you have this uh, peak at the mitraria stage. However, when you compare it with Capitella, that has this larva that feeds on the maternal resources, you see that there's a, pro, pro, uh, there's an, a, a progressive increase in the, in the difference of the expression of genes 
between the direct and the indirect. And somehow, uh, when you compare the two species with uh, uh, larval forms, again, what you see is that the point of maximal dissimilarity in the expression of genes is between the nitraria, so this UFO-shaped larva, and the, uh, the larva that has the maternal food. So basically, the two larvae at the point of maximal uh, difference in expression, gene expression. Uh, okay, that's interesting. So, but because it's basically telling you that the two larvae uh, are very different, and the larval form is actually a stage of, of you know, very different and weird uh, gene expression. So, what we did next was kind of clustering the expression of all genes to see how similar genes. Uh, what are the dynamic of equivalent genes between the three different species? And what you can see here is that basically gene expression follows a, a gradual dynamic between the, during the life cycle of the three species. But here it's difficult to compare one-to-one -one genes between the different species. So what you can do is uh, basically compare the gene content of the different clusters that you generate here. So each row is a cluster based on the expression and the temporal dynamics. And then we can say, okay, how similar the cluster number one in Owinia is compared to Capitella based on the gene content. And that's what we did. And that allows you to make some hypotheses that can explain, for instance, uh, how uh, larvae might, might have evolved. Because then if larvae evolved by using different genes, you would expect that the gene content in clusters that are expressed at the larval stage will be very different. And that was somehow, uh, that was actually the case that we, that we observed when we compare the two species with uh, larval forms. So you can see in this uh, plot on the, on the right, so I don't exactly know, uh, well, yeah. So you can see that the, uh, the content, the gene content in clusters that, are that follow up temporal dynamic during early development is quite conserved between the two species, uh, meaning that development is more or less similar regardless of their life cycle. And then the genes that are expressed uh, at more late stages, so in the adults and so on, are also more similar. But then the genes that have a temporal dynamic at the larval stage are very different between the two species that have um, a, an intermediate lifestyle, life stage. Uh, and that basically we can quantify this because we can know how many genes are active at these different, at these different stages. And what we basically found is that this difference in gene expression are probably due to the fact that these two larvae have very different bi uh, biologies, right? One is uh, free living, living for a long time in the water column and therefore eating algae and eating other little creatures, while the other one is, uh, for instance, uh, relying on the maternal resources that the mother is laying. So we, we see that the difference in gene expression is due to the fact that they activate genes and pathways that they require at different time points of their life cycle. Anyway, the most important and the most interesting finding uh, that we uh, observe, however, was, was when we compare the dynamics of gene expression and the, the dynamics of gene activity uh, between the two species that have a larva that are in the uh, x uh, axis uh, with the one that does not have a larva and therefore has direct development. So the Morphilus that is in the y axis. 
And then in this case, what we see is that we don't, we don't find a kind of a diagonal in the correspondence between the gene activity, as we were finding when we were comparing the two species within direct development. What we see is that genes that are active late in the indirect development, so more or less in the adult stage, are activated very early in the, um, in the development of the direct, the direct developer. So that basically is telling us that the direct developer does everything at once during early embryogenesis, while the indirect developers break kind of development into two phases, one before the larva and then one after the larva or during metamorphosis. So what we, we, we found this quite, uh, this, this finding quite interesting. And then what we decided to look is, okay, what, what are these genes? What are the genes that are expressed late in indirect and they are expressed already very early on in the direct species? So we found 28 genes that were commonly displaced in species with indirect development versus the ones that, that, that have direct development. And among these genes, we found uh, two genes that are Hox genes, and that may, maybe this, they, they are familiar for some of you. So Hox genes are uh, important to pattern the body, the body axis, and in particular to pattern the anteroposterior axis. And they're involved in, for instance, patterning our nervous system or patterning our trunk. And uh, Hox genes had been actually studied, in, the expression of Hox genes was, uh, had been studied in two of the species that we were working on. Uh, Capitella teleta and Dimorphilus hirothiliatus. And in Dimorphilus, Hox genes are expressed already very early in development, just right after gastrulation, and they pattern the trunk. So they pattern the body. They are expressed along the anterior posterior axis, and they have this staggered expression uh, in different segments of the body. So more anterior Hox genes, like for instance, Hox1, are expressed in, always expressed in. In, uh, in, in segments of the anterior part of the trunk, while post two or posterior hooks is expressed at the very tip, uh, posterior tip of, of the body. And this sort of expression is quite consistent and is similar to the expression of hooks genes in, in Capitella, where they are also generating a code of expression along the, along the trunk, defining different segments and the identity of the different segments. So if you can see, if you look at, the, at this at, on the right, you can see that the, the Hox genes are, uh, when you compare the three species, in Owinia, Hox genes are expressed very, very late in their life cycle. So almost at the adult stage, only at the adult stage. So that was puzzling because at the end of the day, Hox genes are very critical to establish the body plan of an, of an organism, both in, in, a, in, in an annelid and in, for instance, a vertebrate like us. So we decided to check the expression of Hox genes in, in Owinia. And again, indeed, we confirmed what we observed. They are not expressed during development. They don't, uh, they are barely expressed in the, in the larvae. So you can see that only Hox3 seems to have a reasonable and, and probably real expression in the larva. The others are not expressed. Uh, and they become to be very, very heavily expressed in late stages of the larvae, when the larva starts to mature and the adult structures start to form. So the, you have a, a close-up on the, on the right, uh, where you see an arrow, 
a, a white arrow pointing to the actual expression and this kind of uh, region in the inner part of the of the larva is what is called the juvenile rudiment so basically what happens is that the juvenile the, the, the adult uh, the, the, the worm during the larva uh, life the worm kind of grows inside the, the larva and what we are seeing is the expression of hox genes in this uh, part of of the of the future worm then when the larva had when the larva metamorphoses and then you get the, the the adult in this case the juvenile you see how you can see how hox genes are expressed again staggered along the anterior posterior axis with anterior hox genes like hox1 or hox2 being expressed more anteriorly and then the posterior hox genes expressed more posteriorly so in the adult we more or less see the same expression that in capitellan dimorphulus so that was very puzzling so it seems that the hox genes that pattern the trunk are expressed very, very late in the life cycle of uh, a species with a plantotrophic, with a larva that eats and lives for a long time in the water column. So next thing that we ask, that we ask is, okay, is this just one thing? Is this, does this just apply to hox genes or is actually something that is common to, to, to many other genes and is telling us something about the way these different larvae and different uh, organisms develop? So what we did was looking at genes, genome-wide, that are uh, expressed more in the trunk and in the posterior, and then genes that are expressed more in the anterior part of the body. Okay, so basically the uh, posterior trunk genes would be Hox, as an example, and then adult anterior genes would be uh, genes that are expressed, for instance, in the head. And what you can see here in this plot uh, is that uh, during development, so everything that is before this white column, uh, sorry, this gray column, the red, the genes in red, so the anterior head genes, dominate, are more, are more prevalent than the genes that are expressed in the trunk or in the posterior part. But then it is in the mitraria, in this larva, when the relationship between anterior and trunk genes changes. And now trunk genes start to be dominant and be more prevalent than the ones that are exp expressed in the head. So what we found is that there are these two phases of development in, in an organism with a, with a larva that has this long leaf in the water column. One in which the head is dominating, and this is the embryogenesis, and the other one that is post-larva and before metamorphosis, in which is the trunk and the formation of the of the vast majority of the body that is actually dominating the, the development of the organism. And then when you compare the three species, what you see is exactly this. The, what we see is these differences in the timing of formation of the trunk. With Owinia, this larva, as I said, that is eating, forming the trunk very late, and then Owinia, Capitella, the larva that is, re, relies on maternal resources, starting to form the trunk uh, a bit earlier. And then, of course, the direct developer, as we saw in this earlier plot, forming kind of everything at the same time very early on in their development. Um, so the next thing that we try to answer is, okay, we, we now see these differences in the formation of the trunk. So basically a late onset of trunk formation, and this is this blue uh, area in the diagram, versus a way earlier onset of, of trunk development in the species with a lepidotrophic larva and a direct developer. Uh, so how is this, how are these dynamics generated? So what is underpinning and how you generate these different dynamics of, of trunk formation? Uh, 
And to get into the dynamics, what we decided to do is apply a different approach. And instead of looking at gene expression, we decided to apply this uh, to, to, to search and to look uh, into, the, into genome regulation. So how is the genome regulating uh, gene activity? And we use this uh, technique that is called ETAC-seq that basically uh, is able to, to reveal the regions of the genome that are open and therefore they are exposed and probably have a regulatory, a regulatory role. And that's basically what you can see. You can identify regions in the, in the, in the genome that, have, uh, that are open and that can have uh, a function uh, to control gene expression. Um, and this is useful because, uh, of course, you detect the regions in the genome that have a regulatory role but you can look at the sequence of these regions in the genome and identify, for instance, uh, functional elements like the promoter and enhancers, and then look at motifs and look at regions where proteins and transcription factors might be binding. So you can identify potential uh, regulators. And because at the end of the day, we, what we did was generating a time course of development, we, have, we know when uh, these regions, these functional regions are open and in which genes. And that kind of allows you to reconstruct what would be a gene regulatory network. So the relationship between genes and how this relationship and functional interaction changes during development and over time. So that's basically what we, what we did. And we generated equivalent time courses of uh, ATAC-seq, so epigenomic profiling, in the two different species. And uh, again, because we can identify common genes and we can identify common uh, regulatory motives, we could do something similar to what we were doing with, with the gene expression. So we could say, okay, how is the epigenome working in species A, for instance, Owinia, and species B, Capitella, and how similar it is or how different it is, uh, for instance, during larva development, okay? In order to see whether we could kind of uh, see or find a pattern, a pattern that would explain why they have these different dynamics in the formation of the trunk. And well, that was our expectation. Our expectation would be that, okay, they, if they form the trunk at different times, we should see somehow different dynamics, different temporal dynamics of epigenomic regulation. And that's exactly what we found. So you can see here in the right how uh, epigenomic uh, regulation that dominates uh, epigenomic dynamics that regulate late development in Owenia fusiformis with this larva that eats and have a late formation of the trunk is actually activated early in development in the one that relies on, on, on maternal resources. And when you look at what is dominating these uh, different dynamics and dif these different temporal dynamics, what we found is that it was Hox genes, one of the main drivers of these different temporal changes in, in between the two species. So with the activity of Hox genes being very high in Capitella with the uh, maternal feeding uh, larvae, uh, while the one that eats in lives in the water column having an activity of Hox genes way later in, in their life cycle close to metamorphosis. Uh, we tried to dig in a little bit more to kind of see whether these changes, what was generating these different dynamics of hox regulatory activity. And what we found is that there are changes in the conformation and changes in the regulation of the expression of the hox genes itself. 
And uh, that is probably based on perhaps just a few of upstream regulators that are very abundant and are very uh, in, in the regulatory regions of Hox genes. And, uh, but then what is interesting is that uh, what the Hox genes might be controlling is actually not that conserved between the two species. Simply kind of suggesting that what we might have is a situation in which a few upstream regulator of Hox genes can generate very different dynamics but then Hox genes will do very different things to form the trunk, which might also be, uh, to some extent, not that, uh, not, not that um, unexpected because the, the trunk themselves are quite different between the two species. Anyway, that's basically uh, what we found, and that's supporting the idea that you have different times of formation of the trunk controlled by the activation of whole sets of gene networks that specify the trunk and that maybe it is the Hox genes what are upstream of all these of these changes. So at the end of the day, when you look at the, at the diversity of life cycles, what you see is these three different uh, types. One that would be the one that we see in Owinia, in which the larva basically forms with a big head and almost no trunk. And that's why in this sort of larvae are, he are called head larvae or swimming heads. And then during the life cycle of, or the, the, during the life of this larva, the hooks and the trunk starts to form. And then you start having a more adult shape. And at some point there's the metamorphosis and then you have again the, the, the sexually mature bilateral adult with a head and a trunk. But then somehow in some species, what is happening is that the, this intermediate head larval stage is disappearing and the activation of the hooks and all the trunk developmental program is being accelerated and is being moved, bring forward in time or in developmental time. So that then the larva, when it hatches, is already forming a trunk. And that's what we see in Capitella in the one that is that relies on relays on, on maternal uh, food and is of course what then uh, happens in a direct developer in which the larvae uh, the larva stage is completely gone okay uh, of course these are the three different types but then the question is okay well, what is ancestral what might have been ancestral and for that what we did was checking the phylogeny of annelids and seeing what modes of development are more uh, or are at kind of the the let's say basal lineages. And what we found is that the groups that are assisted uh, to the remaining uh, annelids, so the ones that are more towards the base, have this indirect head larva uh, life cycle. So that was our model. Probably ancestrally, what you had is this uh, maximally indirect development. So with a head larva, very late formation of the trunk. And then what happens is that perhaps as a way to adapt and to make things quicker, you start activating the programs to form the trunk earlier and earlier in the life cycle until you completely lose the, the larval traits. So now just to finish, uh, the next and the final thing that we ask, okay, okay, this, this might be in, in annelids, but how common this is in, in all different animals. And the reality is that the formation of a head larva or, and this head larval type is not that unusual in, in animals. So if you look, we go back to the diversity of larval forms and we look at which one of them uh, are head larva, we see that they are quite abundant. So for instance, the one that we were mentioning at the early on uh, on this uh, uh, searching is a head larva 
and many other organisms have this sort of larva made mostly from uh, anterior territories, from head territories. And in those cases, people have studied also the expression, some of these cases, people have studied the, the expression of hox genes, and they saw exactly the same as we did, you know, with hox genes barely being expressed at the larval stage and only kicking in uh, late in development just before metamorphosis. What we did was actually uh, extending these observations to compare all the dynamics of expression of the genes uh, between uh, in these species and comparing it to the dynamics of expression in some of the annelids that we work on. And what we found is that the point of maximal similarity, so the point at which the genes are being expressed in, the, in a more similar fashion between these different very distantly related species, was surprisingly at the larval stage, suggesting that larvae themselves, between very, very differently uh, and, and distantly related organisms, were more similar in terms of gene expression than either the, the embryo or the adult. And that was, again, puzzling. So and with this, we basically concluded that uh, perhaps there could have been two, two options to, to evolve larvae uh, ancestrally in, in animals. Uh, either all this is a case of maximal convergence, and that is interesting because that is somehow what we are showing is that there might have been uh, a common and recursively occurring mechanism to evolve a larva that is by just simply delaying the formation of the trunk, or that perhaps early on in evolution what happened is that the, the trunk at the very beginning in the evolution of bilateans, the trunk was already being formed late in development so that then there was some sort of a head larva and then the same that we observe in annelids happened also in, in all the different animal groups. So that was basically the, the, the work and, and that kind of allow us to, to perhaps start solving this dispute between, between the different options on how larvae evolve, at least by providing a potential developmental mechanism that could explain how and why larvae um, evolve in animals. And with that, I just want to thank you for your attention and I want to thank the members of my lab and of course the funders. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful presentation. Um, you really guided us through um, you work in such a beautiful way and such a it's such a wonderful presentation so thank you so much and yeah. Um, yeah if anyone has questions or comments please either raise your hand or um, share them in the chat and um, yeah in the meantime I'll ask um, some yes. questions this is this is really interesting how this um, regulatory dynamics are quite distinct um, between different life cycles. So um, do you think that during evolution are those um, other genes that um, are more upstream or mm -hmm. um, during earlier development? Are they uh, more conserved, through, uh, like or less like changed in any way, in different animals than um, than the genes that come uh, in later stages of the life cycle, or is that not the case? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and <clears throat> that's something that we 
somehow try to explore a little bit in the in this work, but that we definitely want to explore more in the in in the uh, in, in the in the in the future, because we um, so our work suggests that probably the ones that are upstream uh, are perhaps more conserved, and then the ones that are that come later are the ones that ha that are changing more, which could be perhaps as I as, as I think uh, somehow the idea would be that in the in the gene regulatory network. So in the in the elements that control this, the the onset of, of the development of a of a of a certain structure in development, this is controlled by just a handful of perhaps what we could call a master regulator that tend to be more conservative in different species, and then the diversification of the structure, like having a trunk or developing different types of appendages or different types of legs or wings. This comes by recruiting different genes, and therefore the gene networks would be more diverse in later stages of development. So that's why now what we want to know is what is actually generating these different dynamics of Hox expression or Hox regulation. So is it the same genes that are simply being active, activated also at different time points, or somehow? There has been a change in 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 a few genes controlling these uh, these different dynamics. So yeah, that's that's a little bit the question, right? Yeah, um, it's a really interesting one. And in species themselves, um, are the genes are specific genes more protected so that uh, during um, you know generations there is less likelihood of some to have um, mutations versus others because you know there have been there has been work lately that you know in plants and so on that there are genes that are highly protected from you know mutating uh, in mm. generations yes so so that that's a good point i mean uh, there there has been a, so to what extent these genes might be under purifying selection right and I, I would imagine to that, that, that for instance, Hox gene, uh, Hox genes with this uh, key role in, in specifying the trunk and patterning the trunk, will be more subject to to, to purifying selection. To so more, uh, it will be more deleterious for them to to change and mutate than in in other uh, than in, for other genes in the genome. Yeah, thank you. And um, that's also really interesting. Did you look at um, like epigenetic mechanisms around those genes and during development and compare those between or are you planning to compare those between different um, species or is it something that doesn't make sense? <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no it's, it does. So exactly what we want to know, when, what we want to do now is um, so what we did was looking at this. We use this ataxic uh, technique that basically shows you what is open in the genome and therefore what might be having a regulatory role, but it doesn't really tell you what exactly is the role of this region, whether it's activating or whether it's repressing or whether it's enhancing or whether it's silencing. So what we want to do now 
is uh, apply different techniques to actually give a functional context to these open regions. And again, repeat the, exactly the same, having a temporal time course, comparing the different species, and see then what might have been the driving forces behind activating the trunk development or activating the, the activity of hooks uh, at different time points. And whether this is controlled by the fact that perhaps, I don't know, we could hypothesize that maybe uh, some species has more silencers and therefore the hoax genes stay repressed for longer time. And with evolution, these, uh, you know, these regions that silence hoax expression have been removed and therefore hoax genes can get activated early on during, during development. I don't know. That would be kind of the idea, and that's that's something that we are now uh, investigating. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting aspect, also. And then, um, you know, also then the transgenerational mechanisms. If you yeah stress them out or something, I don't know, heat up the larva <laughs> and yeah. then see what happens to those mechanisms, um, maybe starve them, <laughs> all yeah. those nice things, I don't know. Yeah, 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 would... yeah. Indeed. I mean, and we, and we know that the, there's more to 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 what we are we've checking. I mean, you were mentioning this transgenerational. Uh, we know that DNA methylation is also, might have been also, or might be playing a, a role in these organisms. I mean, and, and at the end of the day, this probably these changes and these shifts between life cycles and life modes uh, have happened uh, little by little somehow, right? Um, so there has to be some sort of adaptation. Um, and there are, there's indeed, uh, there are some species in which you, you, you do see the two modes of larvae, this, the both that can eat and the one that rely on maternal uh, nourishment, uh, and they co-occur within the same species. And then you see that there are mothers that will produce larvae that eat, and then there will be mothers that produce larvae that, that don't eat, and then they, they have the food that the mother they, provides. Uh, and these are, they, they are not, it's not very common, but there are a few species. And of course, these, these species become an obvious target for further research, you know, to try to understand what you were mentioning. This, the transgenerational or the or the or the population control of the mode of development, and and that would be you know the ideal system because it's the same species. So we could hypothesize that you know uh, by looking at and comparing the two the two different uh, types of larva within the same species, we could identify perhaps what what is actually changing and what is actually different in the development of of uh, of these two types of of larvae. And. Another question I had, because I don't know, um, probably, you know, about the field, how it works. Is there a database so you don't have to do all the work for all different species that you can compare that's reliable and, mm -hmm. you know, has is comparable or is that still very difficult? Yeah, so so that's a good point, actually, because the the of course, I mean, for, for the three different species of annelids, we generated the data sets in a similar fashion, which is important to be able to do proper comparisons. But then we did find difficulties when we wanted to compare with other animal lineages. 
uh, because, as you said, uh, it can be that the, the, the data sets have been generated in a different manner with a different technology. Uh, but we luckily, so, so many of these data sets are, are available, uh, available uh, and one can access them freely. They are an NCBI. And then luckily we found uh, uh, yeah, a bunch of, of lineages, some of them having different types of larvae that were actually produced in a way that we could use for, for, the, for comparisons. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask Kirko um, if you have a question. And Joyce, I'm trying to bring you up, but somehow it's not working. Please check when you click on your profile on the bottom if you have an invitation to speak there. And uh, yeah, Kirko, if you have a question, go ahead. Maybe you're too tired because you came from work. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he might. <laughs> Maybe he is not um, available, but Joyce, somehow it's not working to bring you up. Maybe rejoin the room really quick and then it will work. Or, um, yeah, I invited you a few times. Oh, now there you go. Hi, Joyce. How are you? Hi, I am good. Um, uh, thanks for this uh, very interesting talk. Um, I'm wondering. Um, do you see this having any um, any particular applications in terms of um, I don't know something like vector control or uh, any any future plans that you're excited about? Either of those questions. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I mean, as as uh, I think it's important to to to. I mean. It, it, what is interesting is that many of the species that uh, that we um, many of the marine species, invertebrate marine species that we use as uh, in aquaculture, like for instance oysters, they they do have a, a larval stage, um, and I think that the identifying the mechanisms that make uh, that 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 make the larvae is kind of uh, critical because at the end of the day. Uh, the, the the bottleneck in the in, in aquaculture of many of the shellfish uh, is is the larva phase because the many of these species they produce uh, many and thousands and thousands of embryos but then out of these thousands and thousands of of larvae just a few of them become an adult and we really don't know what makes, uh, why is this? Why we have this bottleneck having thousands of larvae and all of a sudden only just a few of them uh, metamorphosing and becoming an adult. And I think that the starting to untangle the developmental mechanisms that control this process and what helps uh, a larva become an adult is kind of critical to perhaps in the long term make this transition uh, perhaps you know artificially more efficient in a way so that then you know the aquaculture becomes more efficient you can grow more oysters or more mussels and and uh, all that stuff becomes more um, um, yeah more efficient and productive oh thanks very good answer interesting yeah and um, you know as we all know our oceans uh, are being stressed and so aquaculture is, is a very important area. Anyway, mm. thanks. Yeah, thank you.
Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Um, I'm checking the chat right now. Um, the hour is, you know, almost up. So if you have a last question, anyone, please go ahead and ask uh, now. And um, yeah, we talked a little bit already about the future of your research, like the different paths you want to go, which yeah. are really interesting. <laughs> and uh, I'm really curious to learn, you know, in the future, what um, you're going to do. But is there anything else you would like to mention that you're currently working on that, you know, would be interesting that I didn't think of? No. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, in general, uh, the lab is quite diverse. Uh, we, we, we mostly work on, on analytes. So we, we, we use this system to, to investigate different aspects of animal evolution. Uh, and then we have this maybe line of research of using functional genomics to investigate how animals develop and how animals evolve. We do more developmental, like pure developmental biology, more checking on cell biology and, and genetics. And, and we've been doing also some uh, work in collaboration with people in the States, California, uh, on, on comparative genomics. So we've been, for instance, studying uh, how some group of analytes established symbiosis with, with, uh, with bacteria and were able to uh, colonize, for instance, the, the deep ocean and the deep sea, uh, and kind of extreme uh, environments in the, in the, in the oceans. So that's more or less what, what we do. There's also some people in the lab working on regeneration because some of the species that we that we keep in the lab, they can regrow any missing body parts. So if you chop the head, they form again a head. And I mean, the idea is perhaps trying to exploit and use uh, this diversity of, of, of non-model organisms, non-traditional systems to perhaps gain a, a different view on, on, on animal evolution, on animal biology, that, that, that in the long run could have uh, some sort of application. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting also that, um, you know, not just thinking about um, application, but also, yeah. um, you know, how, how life works um, yeah. because you know, I mean, there could also be an application for the future, right? Do you think uh, insights could, yeah, could happen that you know we will know how to how to make animals cope better with climate change? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think that they, I mean, it, these sort of things you once one never knows, right? At the end, we time will tell. But I think definitely the the fact of knowing better how animals live and how animals develop and getting a, a broader picture of how life on earth on earth uh, appear will anyways be important for for designing and, and, and viewing the future of our planet i think uh, and only time will tell whether the the, the, the these species that we are working on uh, might have some application like practical application beyond what would be just providing uh better insight on, on animal biology. Well, you know, I love basic science and um, just, uh, you know, out of curiosity to know how, how life works and things work um, is, as I think, really 
important because you know we never know what comes out of it and and uh, I think it's a really exciting um, time for research like this because you know we can analyze more data more quickly so um, yeah I'm really curious to learn about your future work yeah. um, and um, yeah it's it's really wonderful and thank you so much for spending the time here and explaining everything so well to us um, yeah it was really wonderful yeah it was my pleasure my pleasure thank you thank you very much for, for the invitation right yeah thank you no yeah. problem thanks yeah thank you everyone for coming and um, if you like discussions like this um, you know join the club then I think you will get um, updates um, automatically um, and the next discussion will be um, with Dr. Zhang um, talking about a new um, electric molecular motor that they developed their group so uh, it's a different type of uh, research but I think it will be interesting too so thank, thank you again um, it was such an honor and pleasure having you here Emma and um, yeah I'll hope you join us again in the future yeah, I'm sure. good you. luck for everything <laughs> yeah thank you very much <laughs> I wish you all the grants so <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it counts for anything, but <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you, everyone. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.